Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sensat. Hey, man. How's it going, Chris? Pretty good. So this episode, uh, we had Softball Core. She's the founder and design building science principal at her own firm named after herself, Softball. And it was a pretty enjoyable talk. I mean, we talked about uh, similar topics we've talked to in the past, things like sustainability. But one thing I want to share that came out of the episode also came off her website is sort of her mission statement. Architecture is a tool for equity, change, activism, and championing healthy spaces. And I think we covered all of those during the talk. What'd you think? You know, it was another one where I learned a lot. I'm not used to um, talking to too many architects um, and the perspective that she brought. Um, it definitely taught me a lot. And it also inspired me to uh, think a little bit deeper about my work and what I do every day. Um, you know, listening or recording this episode, she definitely said a lot of inspiring things and you can tell she's extremely sharp. I mean, we got to talking about window units, which is one of my favorite subjects uh, there is. So uh, I hope our listeners enjoy. Yeah, it was a great episode and I didn't know you enjoy windows that much, but I hope you get to listen to it, enjoy and check back for more. On today's episode, we have Sathpal Kaur, uh, founder and design building science principal of her own firm, uh, Sathpal. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, we're super excited. We, uh, we enjoyed our last brief intro, and so we're hoping that this is just as good. But before we get started, we really like to know a little bit about you and, you know, tell us how you've managed to get to where you are in terms of owning your own firm and you know really what is that core message of your of your firm sure um so i design um energy efficient and high performing buildings and i've been doing it for the last 15 years and to be honest it started um more as an accident uh, when i landed in us and i was working for a star architect firm and I actually realized I wasn't really learning the things I needed to learn. I wasn't very technical. So based on a friend's suggestion, she recommended I work for uh, my ex-boss, Chris Benedict, who was doing a lot of building science and high performance work. And it, through that, I just got involved in this space of understanding buildings and how they actually incorporate into being these live experiments and how do you understand construction technicalities of it. And over time, I actually began to see them as um, an extension of my own human body as well. Um, like in order to understand insulation and you know why I would wear my own jacket or why a building needed to have ventilation just as you know we breathe. And a lot of these things made sense for me in order to understand just the high building science concepts. And it was really, you know, exciting time just because it was super um, new to me. I was fresh out of school. I had just graduated from the Architecture Association and I was always a designer and learning how to be technical was this new phenomena, which I had never, you know, fully embraced. 
And it was kind of using taking a lot of building science theory and then implementing it, you know, from a blow door test to making sure um, the ventilation was working and really being on site a lot in under to understand what the building was doing as well. So, you know, sometimes we as architects get stuck in looking at the detail in 2D, but looking at that real life, you know, detail really changed it for me because I could really embrace it, what it really meant. And yeah, it was, you know, it was, I didn't, that, you know, this is again 15 years ago when it wasn't really cool to do sustainable work. So I was actually very shy about speaking about the work that I was doing because I didn't feel people were interested in it. Or if I did mention it, people kind of, you know, it didn't seem cool. It didn't have that edge factor. And of course, um, now it's um, it's great because a lot of people are doing this. Was was there a particular moment um, when you were growing up or when you were going through school where you knew that you know you had a passion um, for building science or um, design? You know, I would say I. I didn't see it in myself and is it something later when I actually decided to start my own firm I would say people saw some that ethical element in me more than I saw it in myself because even my friends when they were comment on when I was like hey I'm doing this type of work they're like it makes sense you're doing the work that's more ethically based because it was I guess my personality is as such that kind of goes circles back to my name truth um, I like to kind of be very transparent and you know just have a lot of um, do research to show what the work is doing. And even my work that I did at the AA was really kind of looking at this, um, what it really meant in terms of identity, um, the incarnateness of space, what it does it mean as we try to deconstruct space itself. So I think I was always caring about the environment. I did care for it. And, uh, you know, in uh, being born and raised in the UK, it was very different because, um, you know, we had books of climate change. We had books for understanding what it meant, uh, what's happening in our environment. And being um, taught at the AA, it was a little bit more of an untraditional um, education in some ways. Like, you know, they really encourage you to kind of take something and really embrace it. So I think it was there, but I didn't see these elements of this in myself because maybe the problem was I didn't see myself as being cool too, which I think it's true. And so, yeah. No, you're no, you're pretty cool. Um, so speaking of cool, one of the things that I noticed uh, when we were kind of looking um, looking at you was you were named uh, 40 under 40 by the Building Design Construction. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about and, um, you know, what that meant. Um, I think it, well, firstly, it came about because um, at the time I was working at a different firm and someone suggested I should apply for it. And I, I was like, no, I don't, you know, I don't think I'll meet the deadline, but my husband, bless him, he applied for me instead. And he put the application together over the weekend. Um, and I think it was, again, going back to a lot of the things where, you know, when I did the 424 Melrose and 803 um, at the office of Chris Benedict, this was still very much new. There was not much, you know, multifamily work and that was passive house. And also, um, I think I was too shy still to speak about my work, which, um, you know, I kind of wasn't embracing it enough, I guess. Uh, but, you know, the application he submitted on the weekend and when I got the award, I was 
very shocked to say the least, but uh, it, it's, it's nice to see the work of, uh, especially building the first two um, being recognized because we knew it would change a lot of the codes and what it meant for multifamily for, especially for affordable homes. Um, that was super exciting and, you know, kind of again, taking a concept and making that a reality is something very different because you're no longer speaking about impossible, you're actually implementing it. So yeah, it was it was very exciting getting the award and you know going to Chicago to receive it. And it was, you know, that is also amongst other people who've done incredibly interesting work around you. So it's it definitely defines something that you're on the right path for sure. Now, did he tell you he he volunteered you or did you not know till you got the award? Um, he told me he was, I told him about the award and I said, I don't think I can apply for it because I said, there's a date left and he's like, I'm going to do it for you. And so he did, <laughs> he got all the information <laughs> from me and he put it together and um, he submitted it. So yeah, I was, he did tell me, and I think, you know, he helped, like he was also the one that actually pushed it to other websites, you know, saying I got the award, but I think at that time I, I still couldn't. I think I couldn't understand a lot of the things I had basically had done because I was still very much younger then. And um, a lot of the people I was meeting, they were not in the same circles as I was. You know, they were working for very different architecture firms. And so I think there was this thing about like, you know, how do I speak about my work in a way that people can still um, understand it, that can be approachable. Um, but once he did ap apply for it, I mean, I think when we looked at the past candidates, we, we felt we had a good shot. <laughs> felt pretty confident. Yeah. <laughs> so um, as non-residents of uh, the Big Apple, New York, um, could you talk to us about the One City Built to Last initiative and your contribution of uh, helping design the first multifamily passive house in New York City that was uh, recognized by that? Yeah, so I think um, when we did the uh, 424 Melrose Street and um, 803 Knickerbocker, they initially were designed as being high performance and it was, you know, then explained to the client that um, if they build this passive house buildings, it would be a game changer for them. So I really uh, want to, you know, commend the Riceboro, the client for actually taking this um approach and really implementing it in their buildings because it wasn't really done to the scale especially in new york city for affordable buildings still making it a um you know baseline you know same cost as standard buildings it was a huge deal um and also meeting the air tightness was an even more bigger deal so um it came about just taking a already high performance design building and then executing it to becoming um, built to passive house standards. And I think the client was the one that was very open towards the idea um, and taking, you know, knowing what it would mean also for them as an organization. And then with, when the first energy bills came out, the mayor recognizing that this is something that can be done for future affordable buildings. It's not just, you know, a baseline, uh, affordable buildings don't have to be done for standard or baseline buildings. There's you know, the excuse was no longer there. We had the data. It was, you know, kind of being and setting an example to follow this. So that I think was what really made to change certain guidelines, changes for affordable 
future construction that now have that incorporated in there. And now and now more in New York City, we're seeing that even in part of like retrofitting affordable buildings in New York, they're still, you know, they're trying to be done to pass the house standards or even net zero standards. And I think that's very exciting. It really changes the language and that this is not just an exclusive lifestyle. It's, you know, it's, it's applicable to all. I think it's a great tie-in to um, where I really would like to talk some is your philosophies on sustainability. Architecture is my tool, right? This is my superpower that I have. This is the tool that I know I can make the change in the world and in the built environment and still be able to deliver it in a, in a way that can form um, activism, um, equity in the buildings I know um, that lead to me. And it, you know, most healthy buildings, um, high performance buildings have been designed to be healthy. I think most people are so busy looking at the numbers, we kind of forget that, you know, vulnerable communities are part of that equation too, how we design for them. They're not necessarily always the stakeholders there. So we as architects come with a lot of influence and biases how we design that space. The question should be really be asked, why are we not designing healthier buildings, right? Um, in order to reduce the energy burden for these communities that are out there. And, you know, therefore, if they are more, um, if they're protected, quite frankly, we all are going to be protected. And I think it's this whole circle that we kind of have to look at it more in a logical way versus, hey, we're just going to meet certain tick boxes. Yeah, the way you put that was really inspiring, you know, saying architecture is my superpower and that's how I'm going to create, you know, the change towards, you know, more sustainable buildings and helping out of climate change. But also these are all very complex problems. There's no one way to solve it. But if everybody can kind of use their superpower, whatever it is, however big or small, you know, and kind of put the focus towards that. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. That that just really struck a chord <laughs> with me. That was really cool. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I, I I mean, people ask me what my superpower is. Well, I'm like, well, I would definitely say design, like architecture for me is. It's something that I feel in my element for sure. Um, I, I love the innovation that you can have. I also feel we as designers, whether you're architects or engineers, or even any kind of creative thinking, the beauty of it is that you can, you know, you can work across cross disciplines. This is amazing. It's not just, you know, very specific anymore. And I think in order to make future changes, we, we have to kind of, you know, embrace some of this thinking too, in order to see certain changes, a solution is not going to be done by me alone. And I recognize that. And I think as part of recognizing it, I think it's good to be able to collaborate with people to get to a solution or even being open towards certain things. And for, for me personally, it's been a journey where I've been critical of my own work too. I realize I also come with certain privileges doing the work that I do. And, you know, some of this has been where I stand with my work, what could I be doing better or different? And how do I need to be educated to be more responsive? So, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, this, we're, we're in interesting times in general, I feel in our field, just in the built environment, just because everyone, we can provide solutions. And I, um, and I think that's exciting for sure. 
And we can influence so much um, from a social aspect that I don't know if a lot of architects, I mean, maybe they do. I don't, I don't know how often we think about it because we get so consumed with the day-to-day, um, but by just the spaces we create and how we influence the communities that they're in, I mean, it, it's a huge impact. You know, you mentioned in our last, when we last talked, you kept saying this idea of sustainability as a standard and not a lifestyle. Um, and we sort of touched on a little bit, but I'd like to, you know, dig a little bit deeper into that. And, you know, what is it your thoughts are on, you know, how do we, how do we get there? How is it, I guess, currently we look at it as a lifestyle from your perspective, why is it just a lifestyle? And then what are some steps we could take to, to make it a standard? Um, so I'll be using my own experience because, um, you know, every state is different and this is just based on what I've been seeing over the years. Um, I do think when we talk about just sustainability in general, um, the concept is really considered as, um, there's two. In, uh, one is we consider it as a lifestyle with someone with privilege, with money, be like, hey, I really want to have that high performing net zero home. And I, you know, this is what I want my family and me to encompass as we go into the future, because I'm really concerned about what's happening. And then the other type of client that I sometimes find is, um, you know, with the vulnerable communities, the reality is they don't even know what a sustainable home is. So that's number one. Um, for they usually are coming from baseline buildings. So when we're designing some of this stuff is we, they only know what the standard might be just based on whatever they are given. So when we're presenting these options to them, is we are in, in that again back to that position of be able to say this is what we will be designing for you because it's right, and I think therefore we're kind of still seeing it as an exclusive element versus being a standard. Like most buildings, yet still are saying, okay, you know, to build a sustainable home or building, it will cost you. I don't know, like 30% or 50%, there's still this myth, which is not really true. We've, you know, we're all, we have the tools again to um, cut down costs, to get more creative. And I think that's, you know, with these, we're not really embracing a lot of the things that we could be doing uh, moving forward. And I feel some of the reasons it's not becoming the standard as fast as it could be, because there is a, there's been a lot of pushback over the years where people didn't want to do it because it, there are some elements you do have to um, implement to make buildings obviously perform. So in some of it means also re-educating the construction field too. And I, you know, there has been a shift in the construction field over the years where people have started doing it, but it's not overnight. So this, you know, the change itself is slow. And also, you know, as you know, when you go into school, uh, the focus is not really gearing a lot of like designers or engineers to say, okay, work in a way that we're trying to get these solutions for you. You know, this is how we want you to be do, building future buildings. And I think, you know, I've kind of seen that the reason the standard is not, you know, obviously codes make it standard where you have to implement this. But what I usually sometimes find, even with people, when I have to look at sometimes their work, um, just the basics, someone may not know what an air barrier is. They may never know where to put the insulation correctly. They may not even know that they have to insulate their um, foundation, just simple things because the knowledge is still not accessible in terms of it to become a full standard. 
And I think once that, you know, we start doing it more and more and more, and it just becomes, you know, a almost like eating chocolate, <laughs> I think it becomes just easy. And I think that's usually why, even with um, designing anything that's usually high performance, the education is needed first, even with the construction team, in order for them to say, hey, we're going to be designing this. This is how we want us as a team to be able to incorporate these methods. Do you understand? Do you have any questions? So really having that whole you know, process involved, it's, it's still not very much of a standard quite yet. I mean, when we had designed, um, I believe the energy codes came out later. And now when I look at the energy codes, in New York City, at least, they are required to have an air barrier and insulation, but a lot of designers struggle with this because they don't really know what this is. So the standard is not accessible to everyone just because there might be a gap in terms of your year where you are, like you never have done this before, it seems a little bit new. And it also could be you're from, you know, you just graduated from school, you don't have that access. Um, but I think mostly it's the, I think is the myth of the cost as well. I I feel there's a hesitancy in general, like, oh, my I live in a very sustainable home because it may have, um, you know, double pane windows or something. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. It definitely seems to be... um it seems like a luxury for, for many, or at least the perception. I mean, we, we did a recording um, yesterday and we talked some about the, uh, the problem getting owners involved is the cost and the perceived cost. Um, but it makes sense that when I haven't thought a whole lot about it, education is a key component to that, to educate them that there are other ways to do it without it just being, uh, you know, a super expensive solar panel on my, on my roof. Right. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I've normally, especially like, you know, this different when you have the two type of clients, you have someone who wants to build it, so they, they're okay paying it. I think when you have someone who has a certain type budget, they may not, you know, they might have them, so no, 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 I'm, I don't, I don't feel comfortable spending that money. But the reality is you, you can do this and you just have to get creative. I mean, if you have a very if you have a well-performing um, envelope and you have smaller mechanical systems, you already kind of cut down half of the cost that you would have done in a baseline building. So that's really great. Um, and I think that just kind of elevates when you start really pushing what the market really needs. And that to me has actually been the reason I think once you start to trade off a lot of the things that's missing, like you know, understanding why the building has to become super tight, learning how to um, detail correctly uh, what's missing. And there's more resources there than there were when I started. I mean, quite frankly, when I started, therm classes were not available. And I remember going through a hundred plus page of therms and realizing I just didn't understand the jargon that it was presenting 
But, you know, if all these things were available when I was doing it, I'm sure I would have jumped on it. But, you know, a lot of things are now online available, which makes it accessible. And there's people who have, they're more happy to present information more of a sharing way. So I think the standard is, is slowly becoming the standard. And I think in the next coming years, it, I can see the shift happening, uh, you know, so it's not this, uh, you know, sustainable, sustainability is not just a lifestyle. It's just like, oh, you know, we have, oh, my building already has this. I know what an energy recovery ventilator is. Oh, I know what you mean about that, you know, great fresh air crisping, you know, so we kind of can live through our buildings setting these examples. And I think that way we see this is not just one community having it more than the other. It's just, you know, integrated into our system thinking in general. And, you know, I think that's where the work is um, required when we start working on it with the, you know, with the builders, with the designers, with the engineers, and you get to see, you know, your thoughts, what you might want to incorporate as much as crazy as they are. People sometimes have something valid to introduce as well. Oh, yeah. Coming from the construction side, I've always found that renovation work was a lot more difficult than new construction ground up. Um, cause when you open up a wall, you never know what you're going to get. Um, <laughs> so, uh, when it comes to, um, you know, renovating high rise buildings in New York, um, I saw on your website, um, a detail for a window unit and I'm not sure if there's like a specific name for it, but could you talk about that a little bit? Cause I saw you wrote a great, uh, like blog post or article about it. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so that was actually designed, um, that was designed again for a passive house building. And at the time um, we were looking at different solutions to provide cooling and meeting passive house standards is super tight because you, know, you have to test it with all the components in there. And because we were keeping the air conditioner in and still be able to have the window that's going to meet ADA, still meet light and um, air, and you know still meet passive house standard, it was it required basically creating a new prototype. And I was totally excited about this. I'm not going to lie. I was like, I can't wait to do this. I know how to do this. I let everyone and. I remember the clients, um, they were a little nervous because they were like, do you think it would work? And um, after designing 424 Melrose and 803, we had a similar thing. So I kind of knew it would already work. Like it was just a, a version two of it in my head, quite frankly. And um, so when I was looking, when I was designing that, it was really important to the client that the, you know, someone could actually open and close a window being in a wheelchair. And that became tricky for me because it really meant, you know, really designing to someone's need. It wasn't just about the envelope anymore. So really meeting the requirements of just forward reach and making sure it all kind of still be have enough light that you can look outside. So you're not obstructed with this air conditioning in there. It, it was a it was a process and you know when we were looking at a lot of this it was I kind of saw it as a way that this particular window prototype could be not could be done also for um, future buildings in the sense of retrofitting it's not just for new buildings and that was the beauty of it because sometimes what happens is like not everyone can afford to 
for mini splits immediately, like, you know, cost might be an element. So it gave a range of different elements that were not available in the market then, but would be later on. And in the testing process, if, you know, the client, I had left my firm at that time, the firm I was working for, but they were super gracious about allowing me to come in and document and, you know, understand what was happening. And uh, what was really inspiring to me watching this process is they had one woman who was the only one responsible to tape and cork the entire windows for that entire building. And it was just amazing to just see her do this work. And she was just so proud of it. And her, like, you know, watching her cut this, having this, you know, kind of whole sequencing and how it would work. For me, it was really inspiring, like kind of watching her putting this, you know, kind of masterpiecing this technique that normally you would see men do. And she was instead doing it. And she was my size. I mean, I'm just barely five feet. So she was just like, you know, lifting everything up, cork, cork, cork. It was, it was a super exciting time. And, you know, just a few weeks later when the whole windows were in, then, you know, I, I had actually emailed the client. They're like, yeah, we, you know, we met the test. And it was, it was really nice to see. It was really rewarding. It kind of feels, sometimes I remind my, you know, when I give um, sessions out to other people that we focus on the big things like, you know, buildings and the, you know, design element. We, we forget what these small prototypes means also as part of them where you know having someone having the access to just cooling especially in New York City is a is a big deal um, but also for someone in a wheelchair as well having access be able to have the same uh, you know elements to use the design is super exciting so yeah that's how that particular one came out and it's funny, I've gone to um, conferences since and uh, they pull up the design. So it's always nice just to see people say, and you could use this. And you're like, yes, you could use this too. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I went and watched your video that you did on uh, the snow, the warm oh, yeah. snow. Yeah, I watched that. I thought it was super informative. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting you brought up the, the individuals in the wheelchair, because another thing you mentioned last time we talked, which I thought was kind of compelling, which, you know, I, I don't hear enough people say is how you really wanted to change the way we think about the buildings and really treat them more like an ecosystem of people that are in it. Um, you know, can you speak a little bit to, to what you meant by that? Yeah, I think um so one of the things I feel as a designer, um, I was critical of myself is um, I had my own biases when it came to design because we already have our preferences, what we like and what we don't like. And I think when you when I was designing some of the um, earlier affordable buildings, I don't think I really understood what it meant for communities in there, what they liked or what they didn't like. And I think some of it's, obviously my own education, like, you know, having a more of a colonial um, architectural understanding of things and where I was born and raised. And, but once I started dissecting a lot of my own work, I realized that I wasn't really designing for these people per se. They were obviously the end users, but I wasn't really understanding their true needs. Um, like they, in New York City, were a melting pot. They, you know, certain communities, might have different needs to the others. Like, you know, cross-generation living is, is a big deal in some communities and yet we are not designing for them. We, we don't understand these needs and, and that's very much what the communities are focused on. 
So I think when we looking at an ecosystem of designing, for me, it's very important to see what's actually happening in that particular place. You know, where I might be living is going to be radically different to Brooklyn or South Bronx or Staten Island. And that's because the communities and their needs might be different. And I feel design, we don't really kind of take that much into account when we're, you know, it's pretty much standardized still. Like we forget to include what the changing need might be needed um, in that environment. And I think for me, that's really important to kind of address in order to make future changes. Like, for example, even in light of COVID, where we'll still be spending some time at home, even moving on, you know, in the future, are our current spaces still relevant? You know, do they still meet the needs, what we need for future? And I think these are hard discussions when it comes to um, affordable designs too, because, you know, they have certain guidelines you have to follow. Um, so I think my question there is like, do, the, do we need to go back and just revisit some of these guidelines? What are we looking at and how do we design for them? Um, because it's not just only about enclosure and getting the enclosure right. It's also about understanding what is really needed inside that space as well. Um, and I think that's why architecture is super exciting that you can, you know, you can speak with the people who are going to inhabit your space. It's not just about um, getting to the solution quickly. Um, and, you know, I'm guilty of that too. But just really maybe taking a moment and, you know, assessing it more so than anything. Yeah, the, the last time we spoke, um, you talked a lot about how, you know, the way our industry is taught, it's arcane, um, you know, and I feel like that goes for both construction and, you know, architecture and engineering. Can you describe um, what you mean by that? I think it's okay in the sense that um, there is new technology out there and we have a lot of things that we can still learn and address. And what I've been learning when I've been working at, even at different firms and understanding what their needs might be, Sometimes I feel it's just a fear of adopting a new idea or a concept. And I think with that means people sometimes are scared to just be the first, quite frankly. I think once if you're okay being the first of not knowing whether you might have the success or not, obviously you're aiming towards to get the success, it's easier. So when I when I kind of look at this, I you, in my mind, I already know what the no's will be and what the yeses will be, but I kind of just filter out the no's already because I'm determined it has to be a yes regardless. And I haven't, you know, I, I remember when I was working for the SSUS ship and we had to do the presentation. It was the concept of the ship becoming a net zero wasn't even something that people thought was possible. And yet that was the first thing that came into my mind. Like, why wouldn't you want to be retrofitting a ship to such standards? And I think sometimes the thing is we get so carried away with the history of, um, of, of something that having so much value that we forget what it means as we merge forward with things. And I think that's where, you know, you know, there has to be a marriage of two of two worlds. We can't, in order to move forward, we have to kind of embrace the technologies and show the beauty of the past too. But it cannot just be, 
we, you know, it was done X way. So we're always going to follow this procedure. And I think that's the reason sometimes people can end up hurting, you know, future innovation or future strength because, you know, technology is moving fast. Construction is part of it. Design is part of it. And in order to kind of do a lot of these things, sometimes we may not have the solutions, but, you know, everyone has to be part of the solution thinking. And I think that's where, I think some of the you know critical thinking that I feel is missing is really kind of just embracing it. You're not going to have every single answer all the time, but you you know your process is to try to get there. And I'm much more process driven, where like I like to show my what I'm thinking and how I'm thinking about it, so people can understand it. Um, but I feel the reason a lot of things are not changing in our industry is really because. We're still, we're still giving a lot of, um, I think the preference is really to give more importance over, um, you know, how aesthetically something might be, for example, or it's living in a different world, therefore things are harder to become more standardized or you know, changing, you know, and this, the change, for example, even the passive house has been, you know, it's still a very small percentage is not huge it's becoming more and more but you know when you look across when I step outside of New York City for example and I go to other states people are doing it but they're not doing it a lot like how many suburban homes new suburban homes as, as they're being constructed how many of them are truly energy efficient probably not a lot because developers already have decided what and what they want to be building so I think there's this mentality that's hard to change you know, um, kind of as we wrap up, one thing I, I feel like I wanted to ask is you've talked a lot, you talk a lot about affordability, you talk a lot about the vulnerable, you know, what was it maybe in early in your career that really pushed you towards wanting to help serve that underserved community? Um, I think I always wanted to work um, to help people. Um, that was always my thing. Um, we also have this concept called seva in the Sikh tradition, which means basically selfless service. And you do it with no reward or recognition. And it's something even I truly believe in. It's, um, you know, all my life I've done it, um, not thinking anything of it, you know, so like feeding the homeless, making food. And I think when I started designing, I really wanted to be able to design for their needs and it was also a community that doesn't really get much attention um, in general. But I think for me, what was also interesting is I could somehow relate to what they were experiencing, um, being an immigrant myself, being raised in an immigrant family too. Um, the needs, you know, these are the things that if I was a child back then, I would have totally associated with some of the things that you know, they were suffering, or like, shouldn't use the word suffering, but they were encountering, you know, just generally with buildings and, you know, leakiness. But I, one thing I want to just kind of point out is what I normally find with a lot of these affordable communities is, you know, they have a lot to give, though, which is always strikes me as amazing. Like, I would walk into their home and they will still treat me as a guest. Like, they would say, hey, have a cup of tea. I'm like, no, no, no I just have to just quickly take this measurement. And there's a lot of warmth and, you know, just generally acknowledgement that, you know, they, they want you to be there, they want to have these changes. And so when I, when I think about the work that I want to be part of, or, you know, see things that are being built, it's really because I want to see the changes. 
um, at least in my lifetime, um, in the buildings that are missing, like the dialogues in the buildings that are missing. And I think that's, to me, is more interesting. Like the, the, every community has their stories and every building should be able to tell that story. It's, you know, the design is part of that story too and how we engage in it. So that's the reason I think I find telling like these stories through my buildings is more exciting, whether that leads to any kind of activism changes or policy changes or different ways of thinking about infrastructure. Um, you know, I, I feel I'm constantly also learning from them. Like I, I might not know enough about a certain community or even designing for homeless people until you start engaging with the users. And I've always been impressed with what they tell me, um, especially when I did do a homeless um, shelter design they one of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to break away from the tradition of how normal um, affordable buildings especially for homeless shelters you have the services at the bottom and then you have the units at the top and they wanted to make a more of a um, they wanted to have a more of an integrated approach where you have both the social workers in as part of um, the, the dwellings at the top, which is exciting because, you know, it doesn't really segregate who has more power versus who has less. And it's more inclusive that they were trying to create a basically a corridor on each floor that you can still connect with people. And even learning through through the social workers, what that really meant for them and what it meant, the accessibility of someone seeing you was much more higher than someone just coming down to your special place. They wanted to kind of change that hierarchy a lot. And that was, to me, amazing. It was the first way I kind of really acknowledged what programming means when you try to take the, you know, a lot of the feedback and what that means for that space. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's more important when you kind of see as the rewards will follow anyway, but I think you have to be more interested in the journey of it. And I think that with me, I try to keep the open mind and just say whatever I find or see, that's going to be um, interpreted by, you know, their stories mostly. So I've been absolutely inspired and moved uh, by your experiences and your mission. Um, I've learned a lot. And uh, yeah, I, I don't typically close out the pod, so I'll let Chris do it. <laughs> but I just wanted to get that in. <laughs> thank you. Jeff. You had it. All you had to do was say, thank you for joining. No, Thank Chris is the host me. and I'm the co-host. There's a very clear pecking order here. No, <laughs> this is a podcast of equality. No, but no, we, we've, we, we've thoroughly enjoyed um, this chat and the chat before. And um, thank you so much for reaching out to us. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, I hope I did a decent job. I mean, I, yeah, I hope I don't spoil your podcast in any way, but thank you. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2022.